Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. We got down to two or three verses here, but I think we'll just start at the first verse and get the full connection of what we're talking about. Now, we study on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights many times on uh, the book of Isaiah, and we're just about through with it, and we'll go right on to the book of Jeremiah. So you'll be reading ahead and preparing ahead. We enjoyed a real good lesson from Brother Randy Sunday night, and we'll get into this Isaiah 64 tonight, and we take it chapter by chapter and verse by verse and try to study it together. Isaiah chapter 64, please. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. You know, here is a prayer for Jehovah's manifestation. In fact, verses 1 through 4, uh, we find that when they want God to manifest Himself as He had of old. Uh, in verse 2 it says, As when the melting fire burneth. In other words, do it like you did before. Show your presence again. And he was speaking, they're speaking here of Mount Sinai, and when God gave the law, and God's presence was known then. So notice in verse uh, 1 and 2 again, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. God did that when he gave the law. That thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. If you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, I'll read a few verses for you, beginning with verse 16. It says, And it came to pass on the third day, in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that, that was in the camp trembled. So God manifested this great, mighty power and presence. In verse 17, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. In other words, they could not come near and close, close in. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. That was God's presence. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and the waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and, and God answered him by a voice. And then it says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. So God had manifested His power and presence in times past. And, and this prayer in Isaiah is, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. In other words, that you would show again your, your might and your presence and your power. In Psalm 68, verse 8, it says, The earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So the people's prayer here in Isaiah was for another manifestation of the presence of God. When Darrell was here, he got a book for me, downloaded one off the internet. The presence of God. Put it on my computer. 
And, you know, God's presence is known by power and might, isn't it? And, and we see it. He manifested His presence. God is not a God of weakness or frailty or like we would consider man to be. Man is weak and frail. In fact, the very name man means ish or ish and isha means weak and frail. Now, we like to not think that, but that's actually what the word means in the, in the Hebrew. That we're weak. That we're frail. So if we could get the message that God gives to us, He calls us that. And if we just get it in our heads, we really are exactly that. And only the power only that we have is, is God Himself. In verse 3 it says, When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. And this is another allusion, even verse 3, to the to God's intervention on Mount Sinai. Now, verse 4. You have Isaiah 64, verse 4. Always hold your place where we're studying. Verse 4 says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. In other words, here in the Old Testament, it's pointed out that we cannot fully conceive what God has prepared for those that wait for Him. Now, Paul quotes this in the New Testament, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 2 and verse 9, and he says this, But as it is written, and he refers back to that verse, As it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. So in the New Testament, Paul is quoting that very same verse of Scripture and says there are things beyond our imagination that we don't understand. And yet, now look carefully. Do you have that passage? And yet we have a, an additional bit of information. It says in the verse 10, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. So what he's saying is that though we knew little of the things that were still left to our imagination in the Old Testament. And Paul quotes this scripture in the New Testament, and then he adds this, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. He says there are things that God has shown us of that imagination that we have, so we're not left completely in the dark as to the future and glorious things. Now then, we know that we never can comprehend outside of being in the presence of God in the future when the time comes what those things will really be like to experience, but God has given us some insight. He's given us some revelation. He tells us about heaven. He tells us about the glories of heaven. He tells us about the eternal world and eternal life after this life and after Jesus comes again. So we're not left completely in the dark, are we? And so it's a little bit more that has been revealed in the New Testament than we have here in the simple words of Isaiah when he tells us it was left up to our imagination and that we have to wait and see what he has prepared. Now, if you have Isaiah 64, verses 5 through 7 show us confession and humiliation. It says, Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. God will meet with those that work righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth. Now, men that uh, recognize God's anger at sin will say this, for we have sinned. Why is God angry? Why is God wroth? 
because we have sinned. For we have sinned. In those, in those is continuance. And we shall be saved. What's he saying here? Those who wait for God, he helps. If we continue to wait, we realize we have sinned. And here's an honest confession. Behold, thou art wrought, for we have sinned. In those, in, in those is continuance. In other words, some people will continue to wait and trust in God. And it says, and we shall be saved. They look forward with hope. And then they understand in verse 6 what we are really all about. Look at verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. God is speaking to... uh, They're speaking as if they have a revelation and knowledge of what God really sees in us. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses... Notice this. When it says righteousnesses... That means all of our goodness, all of our good works, everything about us that is good, that we think ought to be counted for good, are not counted for good. It says they're like, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And it says, and we do all fade, and we all do fade as a leaf, and and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What is it here? God's people are impure morally, and religiously defiled because of sin. What defiles men and human beings? Sin. And we're all classified as, as uh, this verse speaks of. I won't go into detail, but you study that verse out very carefully at home. And you'll see how we're classified as unclean. Will you do that? Now verse 7. And by the way, we're separated from God's people and made... Uh, their prayers and praises unacceptable if we're separated from God because of sin. Our prayers and our praises are unacceptable. Look at verse 7. And there is none that calleth upon thy name. Remember, Paul says, There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That none call upon God. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. You know, there was a, there's a scripture concerning David that says he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now then, these people, they, that stirreth not up himself to take hold of thee. We have people that will not stir themselves enough to take hold spiritually. Now, sometimes when we see where we are and how desolate we are and how dry and, and how uh, deserted we feel sometimes, and how separated because of sin, we ought to bestir ourselves and say, I don't want to be in this shape anymore. You know, when a fellow realizes his condition, just like a person getting completely out of shape physically, he said, boy, you know, this is getting too big here. I've got too much hanging out in every place here. And I think I ought to do something about it. They bestir themselves a little bit to begin to do something about it. And you see, if we don't wake up spiritually, we'll get in the same situation of, of being uh, lazy and, and really not putting our energies out like we ought to. So, it says, There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. And then it says, For thou hast hid thy face from us. Now, why would God hide his face from us? Because of sin. Remember Isaiah 59, isn't it? Look back a few verses. It says, In verse 2, 
Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. That's 59 verse 2. So, this verse says, For thou hast hid thy face from us, back in Isaiah 64 verse 7. So, we find the reason, back in Isaiah 59 verse 2, the reason God would hide His face from us is because what? Our iniquities and our sins. He wouldn't do that otherwise. And continue on in this seventh verse. Hold your place. And I don't want to get you confused or anything, but remember, Isaiah 64, follow right on down, verse by verse. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. When God's judgment comes, it's because of our iniquities. Now then look in verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay. And thou art and thou our potter. We and we are the work of thy hand. They realize here that they were unable to mold themselves, and they begged God to mold them. But now, Lord, in other words, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our uncleanness, in spite of the fact that all of our righteousnesses, everything about us that we think is good, are as filthy rags, and beside the fact that we have not sought your face, beside the fact that sin is separated and hidden your face from us, we recognize, but now, Lord, thou art our Father. We know you're a Father, so we are, we are the clay. We want you to be the potter, thou art our potter, and we are the work of thy hand. You know, we sing a song. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. In that song that uh, Casey sang Sunday and then the week before, or the time before about the, the Lord molding us and making us and not throwing the clay away. Look in Isaiah chapter 18 and verse 4. Let me read verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Isaiah 18. The word which came to Jeremiah. This Jer- Did I say Isaiah? I got it wrong. Jeremiah 18. I did say it right one time and then I got it wrong the second time, I think. But Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 4. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. The potter was making a work on the wheels. And it says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Now originally, we're just like marred vessels. But it says, so he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. He made it again another vessel. You know, God has made us again another vessel. If we were left in our original condition, we'd be in bad shape. But God is showing us that how he can remake. And someone says, well, why is, the pot, uh, why is it marred in the hand of the potter? Well, the clay itself is the thing that's being molded. You and I are what he's doing. And the work he's, the, what he's using to make something good, he has to perfect it to make it good. And so it shows that originally, man being made of the dust of the earth and having sinned against God is, is sinful in the sight of God. But God makes us again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter. And we can be thankful he made us over again. We call that the new birth, don't we? Being born again. 
not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And so God will make a change in your life and help you to be a different person and a better person than you are. You say, well, I want to be better. Well, there's only one person that can make you better, and that's the Lord. You can have all the want-tos in the world and turn over all the new leaves you want to or make all the resolutions you want to, and without God's help and God's power and God's guidance and God's strength and the means of grace, the Word of God and prayer and the things that we ought to be doing, we will not be made over again and made anew. And we need to be made anew. We should not be satisfied with what we are by nature. We ought to be satisfied or come to be satisfied by what we are by grace. So, look at verse 9 now. And here's a cry for mercy and help. Verses 8 through 12, we just read verse 8, but verses 8 through 12 show us a whole section here that is a cry for mercy and for help from God. Verse 9 says, Be not wroth, be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee. We are all thy people. What, what is their prayer now? This whole chapter is a prayer. The first four verses, they prayed for God's manifestation of his presence and power. Verses 5 through 7, they had confession and humiliation. In verses uh, 8 through 12, here's a cry for mercy and for help. And in verse 9, they say, Be not wroth very sore, O Lord. They're saying, Don't be angry with us. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. They're calling to remembrance their covenant relationship with God. We're all thy people. In other words, God, we belong to you. Now, when you can approach God with this attitude, God, I'm yours, I belong to you, then you have a whole lot going for you. You've got a whole lot going for you. Back in the Old Testament, remember when God told Moses after the children of Israel had sinned and he had come, he came down off the mountain and he found that they had sinned against God. God told him before he got down there, says, your people, the people that I gave you have corrupted themselves. Uh, God said to Moses, he says, take thy people. He says, I'm going to judge those people that I've given to you. And Moses says to God, he says, These are thy people, O Lord. Moses reminds God uh, the need of an intercessor to remind God that we belong to Him. And we have a great intercessor, the Lord Jesus, that reminds the Heavenly Father that we belong to Him by covenant relationship. And you know, when, when Moses got through interceding with God, Moses said, These are thy people, and what are you going to say to the nations round about? That you have brought your people out here into the wilderness to die? That you're gonna, uh, that uh, judgment is gonna fall upon these people and that you failed? You see, Moses knew how to touch the heart of God with these people. And he was a great intercessor. Well, if Moses was, how much greater is the Lord Jesus? He is the great intercessor. And when, whenever even Satan would come and accuse us before God, we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is without sin. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. And it says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, you know, it gives us courage, doesn't it? 
if you didn't think you belonged to God and God would accept you and you had a priestly a uh, great high priest in heaven to see that your entrance into God's presence was accepted, then what would you do? But you have everything going for you. You're a covenant people, and you have the, the intercession of the, of the Lord to take care of you. And so these people were saying, Lord, we are, we are all thy people. Now when we remind God that we belong to him, and not just like Israel of old with a covenant of under the law, but we have a covenant that is sealed in the blood of Christ. The new covenant that is sealed with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And because we've received Him, we belong to Him. And He belongs to us. We belong to Him because He bought and paid for us. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. We belong to Him. And He belongs to us because we have claimed Him and received Him. You see, it's a twofold union that we have with the Lord. You ever thought about that? Why? Why can you say that that you belong to Him? Here's the reason. Because the Bible says you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Then how can you say that, that He belongs to you? Because you've claimed Him as your Savior. He says, as many as received Him to them but gave you power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on His name. So you claimed Him and He's redeemed you. And that makes a twofold union. And and though he died and paid the redemption price for for sinners, unless that sinner receives, there's not that union that is already uh, ready to be formed. In fact, that could be taken from a text in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, there are two verses of Scripture that uh, one of them says. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And then there's another verse later on that says, My beloved is mine, and I am my beloved's. You have the same thing only spoken of in the reverse that shows you the same union and for the same reasons that we've already named. All right, let's look at uh, verse uh, 10. Verse 10 says, Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Now, uh, there's only one city that's called the holy city, yet we find that it says thy holy cities, referring probably to all the places where God's presence had been known and the cities that were set apart for Him. But really, there's only one that's ever spoken of as the holy city, and that's Jerusalem. And Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, would be burned by the Babylonians. But in verse uh, 11, it says, Our holy and our beautiful house, referring probably to the temple, where our fathers praised thee, is burned up with fire. And now he's referring to some bad things that happened to them in, in the Old Testament days as far as Jerusalem and the temple and all the destruction that took place uh, at that particular time. And then, knowing, and listen, it says, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. See that in verse 11? Now, in view of all this, in verse 12, it says, Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? What are they saying? They're saying, God, in the face of all these troubles, in the face of all that we have undergone, will 
Will you hide yourself from us? Can you not see fit now to help us? It's a pretty good plea, isn't it? When you and I are in the midst of troubles, the Bible says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer thee. And and they're putting this same plea before God. They're saying, God, knowing of all that's happened to us, and knowing about our holy cities, thy holy cities, knowing about Jerusalem of desolation, knowing about the temple being our holy and beautiful house, the temple, where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire and are laid waste, and our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou, wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Will you not come to our rescue, considering? You know, God can be pleaded with. God can be pleaded with when we're in trouble. Remember old Jonah, he came preaching and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And he preached that message and the king and the princess and the rulers and everyone from the maid behind the mill and even the animals. He caused them to bow down, didn't he? They clothed themselves in sackcloth and ashes and they repented sorely. And the old king says, who can tell if God will repent and not bring this judgment that he's about to bring upon us? And God did forgive their sin and save the whole city from destruction that he had promised that if they and the the avenue of their deliverance was their repentance and old Jonah got mad about it Jonah had the greatest revival of all time and he got mad about it that's just like an evangelist isn't it have the greatest revival in the world and then get mad about it and he went over and sat under a the little thing that God raised up, vine, and you know, God caused all of these things to be. Finally, he ended up really in bad shape. Well, we won't go into all that. Let's look at the next chapter. We have Isaiah 65. Now look. Here it says, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, Behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. Now here you have the rebellious and their judgment. And you have the faithful and their blessings in this chapter. And you have the divine rebuke to the apostates. And actually, this first verse, in the context of this first verse, it refers to Israel's failure to God and her unwillingness to to, uh, answer His call. But Paul applies this same verse to the call of the Gentiles in the book of Romans chapter 10. Isn't that amazing? It first refers to Israel because they were rebellious. They did not seek God. They should have been seeking God. But the Gentiles who know not God would seek Him when they had moved their heart by His Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 10, let me read verse 20. 10 verse 20. But he says, is very bold... Now, he's talking about Isaiah. In Romans 10, verse 20, Paul says, But Esaias, or Isaiah, is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, All the day long have I, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And Paul is quoting from the book of uh, Isaiah, those, that particular passage. 
In fact, the next verse, you have Isaiah 65, the very next verse says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people who walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. What is he saying here? God is indicating that always He is available to those who sincerely want to seek after Him, whether it's Jew or Gentile. Paul tells the Jews in the Old Testament to seek after Him, and they would not. And he tells the Gentiles to seek after Him, and they did. And he's showing that He's always available to those that look to Him. God's availability. He is available. And then, notice the second verse says, I've spread out my hands. What does he mean? A gesture indicating God's desire to receive penitent people. I've spread out my hands. In other words, I'm ready. Would you come and let me take you into my arms? That's what he's talking about. I've welcomed you to come to me. I've spread out my hands and I'm desiring to receive you. All day unto what? A rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good. Well, we're, we're like that. Israel was like that of old. And it says, after their own thoughts. How's that grab you? After the, their own thoughts. When later on, God says it, or earlier in Isaiah actually, He says that my thoughts are not like your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And when we just say, well, I thought this would be okay. Let's check it out and see if that was a good thought. You ever had people that way? You see, sometimes we don't let our thoughts be directed by God's thoughts. In the psalmist, the psalmist said, I thought upon my ways, that's pretty good, and I turned to the Lord, see. I thought and I turned. And the more we think about our ways, the more we'll realize that our thoughts are not like God's thoughts. And we'll say, well, now what does God think about my thoughts? And then we'll turn to what God thinks would have us to do. Don't be guided by every little thought that crosses your mind. If you, if you do, you're going to be guided in various directions because you'll think one way one time, you'll think another way another time, and we'll have to seek God's way and God's guidance, and then we'll begin to think the right way. You know, Randy was in the service, and I was in the Navy. In the Navy, they when you enter in boot camp, the first thing they tell you says. They said, there's your way and the right way and the Navy way. Well, you don't do it the right way and you don't do it your way. You do it the Navy way. You say, right or wrong? It's the Navy way that you follow. Well, there's your way and what we think is the right way and there's God's way that we have to follow. And we need to seek to find that way in our lives. And usually by God's Holy Spirit... And by His Word, we can find all the proper guidance that we need. In fact, the Bible tells us that we can find it. Paul said that, listen carefully, concerning God's Word, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now listen to this next verse. That the man of God, child of God, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Unto all good works. So, the Bible is saying that God has given us a full counsel here and direction to follow. 
Uh, the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A lamp and a light. It will guide you. Just like in the Old Testament, there was God's uh, pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that was given as a continual continue guidance for the children of Israel throughout their wilderness journey. God took not away that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire to guide them by day and by night. And it's symbolical of God's Holy Spirit that He will not take away to guide us to the end of our wilderness journey. And His Word also is that great guide that we need to follow. So we're guided by His Word and by His Spirit throughout this wilderness journey that we're in today. You know, if you and I would seek to to find our direction from God's Word and then pray for His Holy Spirit to illuminate the things that we're studying out and the, the, the way we're seeking for guidance, He would give us direction and we wouldn't be messed up so much. It's a good road map, isn't it? It's a good road map in all of our dealings with one another and everything that we do. So God gives us a, a good understanding here. Notice something else now. In verse uh, 3, A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. How is it that people provoke God? These people turned away from Him that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick. Look at that. God continually invites them and they continually offend them. God's invitation is continual, but their offense is continual. And they may make no attempt to hide their sin. And you know they offer sacrifices in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick. God doesn't like altars of brick. God commanded that His people make make altars of unhewn stone in order to separate it from those used by the Canaanites. Look back in the book of Exodus 20. You need to read this. Exodus 20. Turn to it quickly. We'll try to give this to you. And verse 25. Well, let's read verse 24 through 26. There are three verses here. We'll try to give you this and then close. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone... Look, thou shalt not build it of hewn stones, thou shalt not build it of hewn stones, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. See what God says? He says, if you try to put your own works in these stones, it will pollute it. You take the stones right from the earth and you you can use them all right, but it's of God's making. And so they worshipped on altars of brick in Isaiah there. And God didn't want that. Neither shalt, look at verse 26, Neither shalt thou go up, up by, by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now then, what he's saying is that God is to be worshipped without human intervention. His altar is not prepared in such a way that we can claim that we, we hewed out the stones and we made it pretty and we made them in the form of a brick. He says... You'll not do that for mine. What God is trying to say to us here is that it's not of our works 
that we worship God in spirit and in truth, in the way He wants us to. And just, if we lift our, look, He says, For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. You've ruined it. That's where men ruin the works of God. They lift up their tool upon it, and they say, You know, I'm going to help God do this. You don't help Him do anything. God made a plan of salvation and uh, the plan of redemption and, and complete and total. And Jesus came down from heaven and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. And if you say, I'm saved because He shed His blood, but the very moment you say, but I have to do this or but I'm going to do that and help Him to save me, you're polluting that altar and that sacrifice that He has made for you. You see, we're saved completely and totally by grace. And the very moment you lift up your hand to try to help it, you're polluting it. Now, works are Christians' natural outflow. Good works are to be done. Jesus, uh, the Bible says, and Paul uh, confirms what Jesus said, that He gave His life a ransom for many. But Paul says in these words, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then someone says, well, what about Christian works? The Bible goes on the next verse to explain that. It says, For we are His workmanship, created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But it's by grace that you're saved. You see, your works didn't have anything to do with that. It was by grace. But your works are the natural outcome of salvation by grace. And we need to get this understood. Well, our time is gone. We'll have to pick up there in our next lesson. We don't have time to finish. So we thank you very much for your patience.